This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker. And this week, Liz Neely is still traveling, so I'm joined by our assistant, Nissa Greenberg, who helps us out behind the scenes. Say hi, Nissa. Hi, Nissa. That's me. <laughs> Nissa is a Story Collider's resident math person, so I thought it would be appropriate for him to join us for our annual episode in honor of Pi Day, which is, of course, the annual celebration of the mathematical constant Pi, which is tomorrow, March 14th. Nissa, I know you have strong feelings about Pi Day. Yeah, I have a lot of resentment towards Pi Day. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I had to teach math class, and it I, I just, I mean, I, that's what I did for a living was teach math class, and I I just feel frustrated by all the attention that Pi gets. Uh, sure. And there's a lot of other cool, irrational numbers out there, and only Pi is getting celebrated. And we're why are we celebrating the three-digit decimal approximation of Pi? That feels like a random choice. Like, why not celebrate <laughs> Pi Day? on the 22nd of July, because 22 sevenths is actually a much better approximation of pi than 3.14, you know? Totally, totally. It's very upsetting. <laughs> I just feel like there were a lot of other cool, irrational numbers that we could be celebrating, like Euler's constant or um, phi. Phi is a really cool number. Or double pi, which is tau. That's a cool number. There's just a lot of cool numbers out there. Pi is not specialer than any of these other ones. So you're worried? You're worried about the other rational numbers? Feeling yeah, left out? I feel like their feelings might be hurt. And I also feel like all my students expected me to bring pi on pi day. And I wasn't going to do that. That's <laughs> it's more work than I was willing to do. Wow. That's, yeah. That's not great for a math teacher, Nis. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a great baker. That's just the truth. They have these things called uh, stores and bakeries. <laughs> oh, I could sell out and buy one from a store. Yeah. What a Sophie's choice right there. <laughs> well, I hope all of you are enjoying Pi for Pi Day. Uh, I hope all the irrational numbers out there feel, feel a little heartened by this shout out. I think we all learned a lot. Thank you, Nissa. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Coming up, because we are regardless going to continue on celebrating Pi Day. <laughs> we, anyway, we've got Against two stories my wishes. about math class. And this is, do you want to introduce the first one? Sure thing. Our first story is from Tori Ball. It was recorded in December 2019 at Beer Baron Tavern in Washington, D.C. The theme of that night was gifts. One 
of the most dramatic emotional breakdowns of my early adolescence occurred in a Kentucky Fried Chicken, which I remember because even as a 14-year-old, I was acutely aware of how absurd it was to be throwing a temper tantrum in front of Colonel Sanders. I was whining to my mother that none of the boys in my grade found me attractive and I'd never have a boyfriend. And my mom had responded, oh, honey, you don't want any of them. Teenage boys are disgusting. (laughs) They're all just desperately trying to have sex with anything. It was at this moment that I started crying uncontrollably. You think I'm ugly? I screamed at my shell-shocked mother. Wait, honey, what? What did I say? I told you that none of the boys in my grade even wanted to make out with me, and you said that they would have sex with literally anything. Therefore, you must think that I am uglier than literally everything. (laughs) My poor mother set down her chicken wing, and she tried to clarify she'd only meant that boys my age weren't known for having particularly refined taste. You know, you might not be what they're interested in right now, Tori, but eventually, boys will start noticing you for how smart and interesting you are. Eventually, someone amazing will see all that's amazing in you. This was familiar advice to me. Um, If you're a girl who's not sort of conventionally beautiful, you hear this message a lot from well-meaning parents and teachers and others. The message is, pretty girls, they're a dime a dozen. But you, the smart girl, you are unique. Eventually, there will come a magical day when a boy lays eyes on you and says, ugh, thank God I finally made it through the tangled thicket of pretty girls and found you, (laughs) the one girl who truly understands logarithms. (laughs) So as a 14-year-old, I put a lot of hope in eventually. I looked forward to leaving middle school and entering into high school, that great bastion of maturity and intellectualism. And lucky me, I wasn't headed to just any high school. Oh no, I had been deemed gifted. I had been accepted into an elite magnet high school where I would be interacting with the best and brightest. I'd be in rarefied air and would finally be noticed for the majestic erudite goddess that I am. (laughs) But it turns out that... um, Entering into a fancy high school for gifted kids does not guarantee you will suddenly be noticed for how uniquely intelligent you are. (laughs) In fact, it almost certainly guarantees you won't be noticed on that front because everyone around you is also extremely intelligent. And as I came to notice, a lot of those really smart girls were still much prettier than me. So my insecurities did not fade away immediately upon entrance into high school. Which isn't to say I didn't have a good experience. I made great friends. I developed, yeah, some of them are right here, everybody. Um, I developed a passion for science and mathematics and music, but I still wasted a lot of time worrying about whether anyone would ever find me attractive. And then, junior year, into my life walked Stan. Stan was, by any measure, an odd dude. I have to imagine that upon enrolling in a magnet high school, Stan had thought to himself, yes, nerd central. Maybe I won't be the weirdest guy in the grade. Uh, But Stan was definitely still the weirdest guy in the grade. Stan and I were seated next to each other in computer science class, and Stan was one of those guys who's really into computers. 
after school, while all the other late 90s teenagers were watching TRL, uh, Stan was independently studying AI and trying to figure out how to hack into stuff. He was always working way ahead of the rest of our CS class. So when we first started learning about graphics, it came as no surprise that he was already creating complex animations. While my screen displayed a humble circle and triangle, he had colorful words rotating around the monitor in 3D. What did come as a surprise were the words that Stan had chosen to animate. Tori, 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 Tori. <laughs> Stan's program was a whirling, twirling tribute to me. <laughs> when Stan saw me eyeing his program, he smiled. I hope you like it, he said. I've noticed that you are very good at coding. <laughs> I examined Stan quizzically, like he wasn't one of those boys who normally paid any attention to girls. But there he was, staring at me with puppy dog eyes. Stan was smitten. He'd seen me skillfully nest some wild loops, and he was sold. <laughs> Stan started treating us as an item of sorts. We never interacted outside of school, or even outside the computer lab, really. But each day when I'd arrive to class, he'd tell me how happy he was to see me. And then he'd compliment me on how elegant my code was. So this was it, guys. This was the moment my mother had promised me. A young man had taken an interest in me for my mind. And it was really, really weird. <laughs> like, I guess I had just imagined things going differently. I had thought that a boy would suddenly notice how smart I was and then take an interest in all of me. But Stan didn't want to talk about my hopes and dreams. All Stan ever wanted to talk about was object-oriented programming. <laughs> That year for Valentine's Day, our student council offered a rose delivery service. For a few dollars, you could fill out a card and have a rose delivered to your sweetheart in class. So the card had space for you to write a little love note, and then there were lines where you could denote the recipient's name and their first period teacher, and then what color of rose you wanted to send them. I received a rose in class that simply said, name, Tori, first period teacher, Mr. Early, rose color, Default. <laughs> For anybody who's curious, the default rose color is in fact red. Um, so I really didn't know what to do about Stan. I definitely did not like him back, but I did really like being special in someone's eyes. So I made sure everybody saw that rose I'd gotten, as if the other guys were gonna think, huh, someone's advancing on Tori. Perhaps she is a mate worth pursuing. <laughs> the next year, Stan and I were enrolled in the same AP statistics course. And friends, if you thought I was hot while programming, I am smoking when taking a standard deviation. <laughs> In truth, I, I really was good at math as a teenager, and I really wanted to be noticed for it. In this sea of brilliant people with whom I went to high school, it, it felt like an area where I could stand out. My AP statistics teacher would start each day with a warm-up problem on the board, and I would volunteer almost every day to put my answer up on the board. Like having my work on public display, it made me feel good. 
What gave me more mixed emotions was how Stan would respond. Without fail, when I would finish doing my work, he would stand up at his desk and applaud for me. (laughs) He also started bringing me gifts. So every now and then I'd get to class and I'd notice a little trinket on my desk. One day, it was a microprocessor chip. Another day, it was an article on string theory. My quantitative prowess had landed me a bona fide suitor. It had also put me in a tricky position. Typically, when someone's romantically interested in someone else, you know, you will either accept or reject their advances and things will proceed from there. But with Stan, I'd gotten myself into an infinite loop. (laughs) I was never gonna go out with him, but I also loved the attention too much to shoo him away. So he just kept trying and trying and trying and trying, ramping up his efforts to impress me. That year, the day before Valentine's Day, Stan approached me and casually asked if he could borrow my calculator. I was sort of surprised by the request in that it was hard to imagine Stan ever being without a calculator of his own. I was also caught off guard when, upon handing over my TI-83, Stan took off running and disappeared. (laughs) But I got my calculator back the next day. It was sitting there on my desk with a note on it imploring me to check out the battery pack And there it was, the most romantic gift I have ever received. Stan had installed a variable speed knob on my calculator. So if I was going to graph a particularly complicated equation or run an intricate program, I could turn up the juice and it would go faster. (laughs) But if I was just engaging in basic computation, I could turn things down and conserve battery life. Stan was not messing around. He had turned the knob all the way up in declaring his love for me, and still I wasn't reciprocating. Stan and I ended up not having any classes together the second semester of senior year, and he mostly just faded out of my life. There was a certain amount of relief that came with that, but also a bit of emptiness. The next year when I started college and desperately tried to find social validation in a new environment, I found myself missing those daily reminders of specialness that I would get from Stan. And when other engineering students would admire my doctored up calculator, I would swell with pride thinking about how much someone had once cared for me. Over fall break, I went to visit a friend at the University of Maryland, and she informed me that Stan actually lived in the same dorm as her. So I stopped by his room just to say hello, and he asked if I would go out for dessert with him. He told me all about the CS classes he was taking as we made our way across campus towards the dining hall. And then, in front of a pastry case full of tarts and donuts, he leaned in close to me, pointed towards the eclair, and whispered in my ear, I think you'll enjoy tasting the long, cream-filled one. That evening was the last time I saw Stan. My mother was right. I did eventually find people who valued me for my mind. But she was right about something else as well. Teenage boys are, in fact, incredibly disgusting. (laughs) That was Tori Ball. Tori Ball is a high school math teacher in Rockville, Maryland. 
She spends her days taking derivatives, graphing parabolas, and making young people giggle when she says the word asymptote. Back when she was a high school student in Rockville, Maryland. Not just for young people. <laughs> we're all young at heart. Uh, <laughs> when she was a high school student in Rockville, Maryland, Tori's antics on the morning announcements earned her the nickname Tori with the Story, a moniker that remains appropriate to this day. Tori has shared stories on stage in D.C. with Story District, The Moth, and Perfect Liars Club, and is excited to have her Story Collider debut. Woo! Woo, indeed. I love Tori's story. So funny. So relatable. For sure. Yeah. If y'all are loving today's math stories, we've got plenty of other amazing math stories that have appeared on the podcast. I highly recommend Nissa's story, actually, What's in a Name, that was his first story ever told at Story Collider. And I'm not just saying that because he's here with me today. <laughs> I actually use that story a lot. I think it's a great story. Is <laughs> Yeah, I know you do. <laughs> I use that one a lot as an example in our workshops of how to turn a small moment into a story. Thanks. Uh, My mom's favorite, of course, is we left in story about being a math comedian in our episode Math Problems from a couple years ago. She likes to use those math jokes in her class because she's a math professor. You got some math jokes, Nissa? Uh... (laughs) I'll take that as a no. Math isn't funny. It's deeply serious. Oh, okay. Sorry. My bad. (laughs) We've also had a a long-time collaboration with Math for America, and we've had some amazing stories from math teachers come out of that, like uh, Patrick Honor's story from an episode we aired in 2018 called Loneliness. I definitely recommend checking that one out. And Nissa, I know that uh, our collaboration with MFA is really close to your heart. Yeah, and uh, I want to recommend Matt Baker's story from the the same show as Patrick Honor's, actually. Uh, Matt Baker's is one of the stories that I love to use in our workshop series, too. It's a really great story about a math teacher. That was from our episode called Help in 2018. Um, Before we move on to our next story, just a reminder, if you subscribe to Story Collider on Patreon for $5 a month, you can get access to bonus stories as well as special behind-the-scenes bonus episodes where Liz and I dig into elements of storytelling craft with experts from both the art and science sides of storytelling. I've just posted our bonus episode where we're talking about how to add humor to your stories with the amazing comedian and Story Collider producer Gastor Almonte. You might remember from his story on the podcast in December. So if you're interested, go to patreon.com slash the story collider and subscribe today. Uh, As we gear up to celebrate our 10 year anniversary this year, we're so grateful to all of you for making that possible for your support and helping us produce this podcast and all of our shows around the world. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. 
Our next story today is from one of our own, Miriam Zaringholm. It was recorded in October 2018 at Beer Baron in D.C. The theme that night was Bonds. So I'm laying across my mom's lap watching another Saturday afternoon marathon of Law & Order SVU. And there's tears coming down my face. But I'm not crying because of anything that's happening on the screen. No, all of these marathons have rendered me disturbingly desensitized to all kinds of truly horrific things. Instead, I'm crying because my mom has commenced hacking away at the ginormous blackhead taking up a sizable chunk of real estate across my nose. She has decided that this monstrosity is her sworn enemy, and she must vanquish it at all costs. And so away she goes, digging her fingernails into the thin flesh of my nose. And it fucking hurts. She's been doing this on and off for months now, and I've learned better than to uh, let out a protest, lest she hit me with another kill me but make me beautiful. (laughs) I love you, Mom. (laughs) And her efforts have largely been unsuccessful until today. Today, as I'm watching Detectives Benson and Stabler exchange meaningful eye contact on the screen, as they're wont to do, my mom lets out a victorious whoop, which startles me and sends me on my feet, staring at her. And there... At the tip of her finger, I see it, the solidified gunk that had once been deeply embedded in my nose. And my pain tears, they turn to real tears, like sadness tears. That blackhead had been with me for six months. It had sprung across my nose when I had first started junior high. It was one of those really juicy blemishes that pops up because of stress at inopportune moments, like major life transitions where you're starting at a new school, wondering who your friends are going to be and how you're going to do in class. And at the risk of sounding too braggy, I was crushing the seventh grade. (laughs) Acing my tests in a way that I never had before, and in my head... It's all because of this blackhead, that in its grotesque hideousness, it had brought me good fortune, my lucky blemish. And there it is, sitting all of my luck, my hopes and dreams at the tip of my mom's finger, as she's smiling up at me with joy in her eyes, having no idea what she's just done. And me, in my horror and grief, all of a sudden, this stroke of genius pops into my head. And I think, I can bag that luck. And so I transfer the blackhead from my mom's finger to my own very quickly before she suspects anything. And I run off to the kitchen where I retrieve a plastic bag, gingerly place the blackhead into the bag, zip it up and run up to my room, stash it in my little lucky trinket box that I keep on my nightstand so that its good luck can live on in perpetuity. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And 
And as the years, uh, my school years go on, I take my PSATs and my SATs and my AP exams, and I start to collect more and more little tokens. Like, uh, I keep the wrapper of a chocolate bar that I ate right before I crushed a test particularly hard. And I start to develop these sorts of good luck rituals, too. Like, I suss out the right gel pen colors to use to elicit the best scores on an exam. Like, red for math, or green for history, or blue for biology. And I start to sleep the night before a test with my notes under my pillow so that I can absorb all of that knowledge sitting in there into my brain so I'm ready for a test. And on the day of the test, I stand outside the classroom waiting for a classmate that I've deemed smart enough to enter so that I can follow afterwards and transfer all of that brain power energy into my own head. And when I finally go off to college, I decide, you know, I'm going to leave my lucky trinket box at home because I don't want to disturb the good luck energy that's been building over the years. But I do take my rituals with me. And as the years go on, and as the years have gone on, they start to take up a substantial chunk of my time and energy. I have to get to class uh, an hour or two before an exam starts so I can do all of the little things, make all of the little arrangements that I need to make in order to make sure that I ace the test. I mean, my future depends on it. And it's all paying off beautifully. My tests aced, homework aced, essays aced. I'm like a well-oiled machine, and before I know it, finals week is upon me. And I have my system down to a T. And I get to prepping, and all is going so great until Friday, the Friday before exam week commences. And I open up my inbox, and I see an email with the subject line, reminder, calculus exam today, all caps, at 2 p.m., it's 5 p.m., and I've missed the test. Holy shit, I missed the test. How could I possibly have missed the test? I flip open my planner, and I start frantically flipping through the pages, and there I see Tuesday, Tuesday of next week in Calculus Red Ink exam. And I look back at the email, and it's not making sense. And I feel my knees go noodly, and my legs buckle, and I sink to the ground, and I start crying, ugly crying to the point where I'm hyperventilating, hyperventilating to the point where I'm dry heaving, dry heaving to the point where I'm making such a ruckus that my roommate Joe comes running into the room, and she finds me in the corner, my head between my knees, in the throes of a full-fledged panic attack. And she rushes to my side and starts patting me on the back, waiting for my breathing to calm down and waiting for me to stop crying so frantically. And finally she asks, what the fuck happened here? <laughs> Which is exactly what the fuck I'm wondering. How could this have possibly happened? I have a system. This can't be. And I'm thinking and I'm thinking and, oh, maybe it's possible that the professor said something about having to move the test up because of a family thing, and oh, that could have been the same day that I ran out of calculus red ink, but uh, I don't, I mean, like, I surely would have remembered to change the date. Oh, fuck, I didn't remember to change the date. Oh, and I start crying all over again. And as the tears are coming down my face, I hear Joe 
start laughing. And I'm confused and I turn to her thinking, what the fuck kind of friend is this? Can't she see that my life is over? This isn't funny. And she sees how confused I look, which makes her laugh even harder. Until finally she slaps me, because that's the kind of friendship we have. And she says, Miriam, do you hear yourself? And I realize what I've just admitted to. That I missed my test because I believed that a gel pen, calculus red to be exact, was the thing that was going to make or break me. And as a result, I've totally failed to show up. And I've never told anybody about my rituals, never said them out loud to anyone, not even myself, to hear how ridiculous it sounds that I have put all of my faith in myself, all of my faith in my abilities and in my success, in the color of a pen, or sleeping on top of a pile of notebooks, or this six-year-old moldy, crusty blackhead <laughs> sitting on my nightstand at home. And so I, realizing all of this, do the only thing I can think to do. And I just join Joe laughing. And when we finally calm down, Joe, being the amazing roommate that she is, helps me pave things over, smooth things over with my calc professor. It turns out that he was always planning on dropping the lowest exam score anyway, because everybody in the class had done so badly, except for me. <laughs> Um, <laughs> thanks, Ed. <laughs> and so my panic attack was for nothing at all. The exam, it didn't matter. And I was starting to realize that maybe my rituals and my tokens didn't matter so much either. A couple weeks later, I go back home for winter break. And the first thing I do after setting down my bags is I run straight up to my room, straight up to my lucky trinket box, and I retrieve that old, moldy, crusty blackhead, and I put it where it has always belonged, straight in the trash. Thank you. That was Mariam Zeringalem. Miriam is one of the Story Collider hosts and senior producers who makes our Washington, D.C. show happen, along with the amazing Shane Hanlon. She is also a molecular biologist who traded in her pipettes for the world of science policy and advocacy. She comes to D.C. by way of New York, where she received her Ph.D. from the Rockefeller University. Her words have appeared in Slate, The Washington Post, and Undark. Her cat is named Tesla, and this is an important clarification. It's after Nikola and not Elon Musk car. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. That's very important. <laughs> it's a much better choice. <laughs> the Story Collider is grateful for Tori and Miriam, as well as the support of the Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, and Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations <laughs> Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Miriam Zaringhallam and Shane Hanlon. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Jen Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Beer Baron Tavern for hosting these shows. And to... 
all the other irrational numbers that aren't pi that are cool, like phi and tau and Euler's constant or E. Um, yes, shout out to Euler's constant. <laughs> Thanks to all you rational numbers for listening. <laughs> Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.